Last week we looked at the parable of the vineyard. And in the parable of the vineyard, uh, we had a landowner, Jesus said, that, uh, that, that bought and built a vineyard and let it out to renters. And when the time for the rent was due, he sent people back to collect the rent and they abused them. They beat them and drove them away. And he tried that for numerous seasons and in frustration, he sent his son. And in this parable, they saw the son and they thought, this is the heir. Let's kill the heir and we can own the property and um, take over the vineyard for ourselves. And that's what they did. They drug him out of the vineyard and they killed him, Jesus said. And Jesus asked the question, what will that landowner do to those people? And the people's response was they would miserably destroy those wicked servants and let it out to another. What an ominous sentence that is in the scriptures. And when we get to, we're, we're picked right up to where we were last week. And so now we're at verse 19. And it says, the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And they were correct. This parable speaks directly to the unwillingness of the Jewish leaders to recognize and honor the prophets that God sent to them, everyone, as well as their intention to kill God's only son, that in their own delusions, they're thinking they might somehow control the kingdom that they would be owners of Israel. I, I don't know what they were thinking. So they were looking for an opportunity to kill him. And in the process of that, they tried two different things. They brought up two different questions in an effort to bring, uh, I don't know, uh, to, 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 to give discredit to Jesus. And the first one was brought by the Sadducees. Now, uh, this is verse 20. And as they watched him, they sent forth spies which should feign themselves. No, I'm sorry, this is the uh, Pharisees. And as they watched, they sent forth spies which should feign themselves just men. <laughs> I, I hope you see that verse. Uh, there are those who are working for the other side that pretend to be what they are not. And we have to use discernment. You need discernment to know what's going on in our world today. We live in an age of incredible deception. And it's been going on for a very long time. Anyway, they would feign themselves. They would fake that they were just men, that they might take hold of his words, so they might deliver him unto the power and authority of the governor. They were looking for some way to trip him up. That's the whole point. And then they use something that should automatically cue in your minds danger and that's flattery when anyone is speaking very highly of you you should be aware there's often a hook inside that flattery and they asked him saying master we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly well they didn't know that at all neither acceptest thou the person of any well that's true but teachest the way of god truly they didn't believe that is it lawful for us to give tribute unto caesar or no. Now, this is supposed to be a trick, see. Uh, and uh, first thing, whenever you hear someone flattering you, you should ask, where's the catch? And I don't know how they thought Jesus was not going to see through this, but it had to do with their low opinion of who Jesus was. They saw him 
as a simple carpenter's son, born in Nazareth, a, a, a no-account city with no training whatsoever, and they did not realize who they were dealing with. Uh, is it lawful for us, notice the word for us, talking about the Jews, to give tribute? Do, do, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the, the purpose of this, see, the purpose of this was if he says no, it's wrong for you to pay your taxes, he would be in trouble with Caesar. And if he says yes, they knew that the people hated paying their taxes, so they were going to say that, that would turn the people against him. So either way, they saw themselves as winners. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said unto them, Why are you tempting me? Show me the penny, whose inscription, whose image, I'm sorry, and superscription hath it. And they answered and said, Caesar's. Now there's a lot of uh, denarii with Caesar's. Uh, oops, wrong button, sorry. Uh, well, there's a lot of denarii with Caesar's inscription on it, but they think, at least the research I did this week said they thought it was Tiberius. And I forget the other guy's name, but the guy on the, the one side of the coin, it's hard to tell heads from tails on this coin, isn't it? Uh, the guy on the, your left, they think is Tiberius, Caesar. And I think, wow, either they did a terrible job carving his face, or that is one ugly dude, you know. But that's a denarii. Well, I had a lot of interbreeding back then. Well, well, it wasn't just the interbreeding, Henry. It was all. You're right, though. You're right. Uh, it was a problem in the in the uh, uh, circles of the powerful. But the other thing was they ran all their drinking water through uh, uh, lead pipes, so it wasn't helping them at all that they were drinking huge quantities of lead. That 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 denarius, it's it's interesting, and I, I was going to get lost in this, and I, I actually deleted a page of notes out of my notes uh, because I thought we don't need it, but that, that equaled the equivalent in Jesus' day of a day's wage. So for us, what is that, a $100 bill, maybe? You know, I, I'll work all day for $100. Uh, but uh, the carpenters I know make $25 an hour now, and that's $200, so you need two denarii to get through a day, so then that's the equivalent of, uh, for a carpenter, 200 bucks. Um, now, I don't want to get lost in this, but the, if you in, in the, the Bible.org dictionary, it says that the uh, the head tax, the census tax, which I'll talk about in a minute, was one denarii per person per year. And they said, "Really? That doesn't sound too bad, you know." Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and these guys were ready to throw off the yoke of Rome over a uh, hundred bucks. You know, I think, wow, that would be nice. Uh, I, I remember watching one of these shows. I think it was Quantum Leap years ago, where the guy. It was one of these shows where he jumps into a, a car from the past, and uh, and uh, he's way from the past, and he goes to buy a couple of cups of coffee and some donuts, and he pays like you know sixty cents tax. He said, "Good lord," he said. We went to war with the British for two cents. You guys are you guys are paying half your income in taxes. Anyhow, taxes have never been never been enjoyed. No one ever looked forward to it. Uh, now they were hoping to trip him up. They were they were hoping that Jesus would uh, trip up. But he's saying, "Well, whose whose money is that? Whose whose money is it? Who's printing your money? Pay pay Caesar what Caesar's 
I like that. And he said to them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer, and they held their peace. So basically, in this process, he silenced them. Now, Paul picks up on this teaching, uh, and, and, and I, I don't know why. I, I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted me to go over this, and I don't know why. I, I wanted to skip it, but Paul picks up on this, and he, this same teaching, and again, I've truncated it. I've, I've pulled out some verses, so you really need, if you're interested in this, you really need to go to Romans chapter 13 read the whole thing, because I'm only going to show you four verses of Paul's teaching. Uh, and he said, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. That's That was a hard thing for him to write. I mean, that's true. God gives us the leadership he wants us to have, and that's a painful thought. He gives us. Uh, somebody said he gives us the leadership we deserve. I, I don't know. Sometimes I think he gives us bad leadership so that we'll wake up. He gives us problems so that we'll come to repentance. He gives us difficulties in our lives so that we'll come back to him. And I remember the first time I ever spent a night in the hospital, at least as an adult, I laid there in the bed that first night and I thought, all right, Lord, you got my attention. Now, what do you want? You know, and that, that's sometimes I think what happens here. But there's no powers that be except those that are approved of God. And then verse 2, whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. It's old English word. It really just means judgment. Uh, you, you, if, if you go against the leadership of the day, you will come up against the court system. That's what that word means. It means you will face trial. All right. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, that's taxes, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, respect to whom respect, phobos, honor to whom honor, owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth one another hath fulfilled the law. I mean, this is the teaching based on what Jesus has said here. We are to be responsible citizens in whatever country we find ourselves, and we're not to be going around uh, bad-mouthing uh, the leadership constantly, but perhaps bad leadership should prompt us to get more involved. I don't know. So that silenced the Pharisees, and they, they, they didn't ask him any more questions, at least that day. Uh, they've already decided to kill him. He's in the last week of his life now, and he knows it, and uh, now the Sadducees are going to take a shot at it. Uh, so this is married life in the resurrection. Uh, then certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. Now, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of Jesus' day, and, and, and sort of, unfortunately, they were the ones in control. I'd forgotten how they got control, but they took turns between the Sadducees and the Pharisees running the government, and this particular time in history, the Sadducees were in control. And they, they were the theological liberals. They actually only accepted the first five books of Moses. That's it. Every, everything else they didn't trust. But the first five books of Moses, they believed in verbal plenary inspiration, that every word of the first five books of Moses was inspired. Now, that's an important point, as you're going to see this in a minute. Saying, Master, now, that, I, you know, I, I read one guy that kind of thought that this was a common uh, trick argument that the Sadducees used often with the Pharisees, and they were just trumping it out or dragging it out to, to run it up against Jesus to see how well he can handle it. You know, the Pharisees obviously couldn't handle it too well. 
Uh, verse 28 saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us that if, if a man's brother die having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now, this is first mentioned in Genesis 38 and verse 8. Uh, and it was written in the law in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, the ancient practice of marrying a near kinsman, marrying your brother's widow to raise up a male child if your brother dies without having issue of a male child, was to protect both the name and the land. The land was given to families, so it was to protect the land and the name. So it was an important part of their culture that they would do this. Uh, my mother was very worried that I wouldn't have children to carry on the name. And I used to say to her, yeah, so what? You know, but that was a big deal. And it was a really big deal in Israel. So Moses wrote it into law. If a brother and brother dwell together, that means they live on the same property and they're both heirs of the same property. So that when the second brother has a child, the child will inherit the property of his father who has already passed away. And it keeps the land in the proper family's control. The wife of the dead shall not marry without or outside or outside of the family unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. Now, this, this rule in the Old Testament was the claim that Boaz made. So Boaz, so this, this is the rule of the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz was a near kinsman, but he wasn't the nearest kinsman. There was another guy closer to Ruth's husband's father, I hope I'm saying this correctly, than he, than Boaz. And he went to the guy who was the nearer kinsman and asked him if, if he was going to fulfill this duty of Deuteronomy 25. And of course, uh, the man is unnamed. At least I couldn't find his name. The man is unnamed. And he said, no, I don't want to do it. And what they would do is they'd take a sandal and they'd give a sandal to the judge at the gate. And that, that was sort of the proof that the near kinsman didn't want the responsibility. And the next nearest kinsman, Boaz, who wanted the responsibility, uh, was able to marry Ruth. Ruth and Boaz were able to have a son, which they named Obed. Obed got married and fathered a son, which was named Jesse. Jesse married and fathered a son, which was David. So this puts Ruth, a Gentile, a Moabite, in the direct family line of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is she wasn't the first. Rahab was the first. Uh, Ruth was the second Gentile in the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that that's significant in anything other than a theological sense. So here's the trick. This is what they were hoping to, to, to complicate, to, to trip Jesus up on. So... I know as soon as they started, Jesus knew where they were going with this. Uh, Therefore, there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. Now, that's the, the, the reason for instituting the, the Genesis law. Verse 30, and the second took her to wife, and he died childless. Well, this is one unlucky family. All right, clicking. And the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. What a sad family. Uh, no children. The men all died. No children. No one to pass the property down to. 
Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think a good question to Jesus would be, what would happen to the property? What about the farm? Who owns the farm? You know, I think the Old Testament teaches that any surviving females actually end up owning the farm. I think Moses said that, but he didn't set it down in writing. He just made a judgment one day. Uh, anyhow, that was not their point. This is their point. This is supposed to be the hook. This is the thing that, uh, that this is the thing that's going to make Jesus tremble in his boots, right? Or sandals in his day. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? She had seven to wife. It, that's a good Mormon question, isn't it? It's 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 really a good uh, Islamic question. What 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 about that? I mean. Whose wife will she be? Well, Jesus' response, I think, speaks to us. I think it speaks to marriage as well. Jesus answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. I'm sorry, boys, but you're wrong on both counts. You don't know the Bible and the scriptures, even the scriptures you claim to believe, you don't understand them. You have no idea how powerful God really is. Now, now, you have to understand they're coming from a position that they don't believe in the resurrection. And they're saying that the resurrection creates such a quandary that even God himself can't untangle it. That, that, that What are these guys going to do? All seven of these boys were married to the same woman, and God, even God couldn't unscramble this mess. I met a guy one time. Uh, his name was Paul. I forget his last name. He was in jail in Hornsby when I first met him. And he made a profession of faith. And I, I believe he I believe he was a believer, but he was on his third wife by the time I met him. And he really wanted to serve God. And he got tied up in the church. He came to my church and was so terribly offended by my men who mistreated him badly, verbally, not physically. And they, they really didn't want prisoners in their ex-prisoners in their church. And they, they were rude enough to him that he left. And he went to another church, and the pastor of the other church said, the only way you can be right with God is to go back and marry your first wife. And he divorced his third wife and then started courting his first wife and went back and married her. Well, you can imagine that that, that didn't last too long. And I, I don't know where he's at today. The last I'd heard is that he had divorced his first wife for the second time. Uh, you really can't you know the question is for me what about all those sins in my past what about all the mistakes i've made you really can't unscramble the mess that we've made of our lives we really just have to lay it before the feet of jesus and let him forgive us of our sins and move on from there you can't undo this mess i wish you could there's a lot of things i wish i could do over but you can't you know you really can't Jesus is going to explain now life for you and me married in the resurrection. There isn't a lot of information about what life in heaven is going to be like. So this is just another one of those glimpses. Jesus answering said unto him, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. I think there's a barb in that to tell them, you're not on that list. You know. Those that are counted worthy. How am I counted worthy? Faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope I have of salvation. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world 
and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. You know, Jesus said people marry in this life, but there'll be no marriage in heaven. Marriage was an arrangement that God started in the beginning for life here on the earth. He wanted to fill up the earth. Now, as I think about that, I think if, if I'm hoping to ever graduate and be a good husband, or if you're a woman, you ever hope to be a good wife, I hope you realize this life is your only chance. You know, you're either going to get her done now or it's not going to work. You really, you'll either die a good wife or a lousy wife or a good husband or a lousy husband. And there's no rebuilding that in heaven. I'll do better when I'm in heaven. No, not the case. All right. I remember Pat Hood, his wife died about eight, eight weeks ago now, maybe nine. And he said one of the things that struck him so sad was that he would never again have his wife as his wife. That relationship is over in, in eternity future. And he said, I wish I'd have done a better job, you know, while she was here. Now, I don't mean to say we won't know one another because we will. We'll know one another. I don't mean to say that we won't dwell together. We will actually, if I understand eternity future at all, we'll all dwell in the big house with, with Jesus and the Father. We'll all have apartments or rooms in the big house uh, I think they call it heavenly Jerusalem uh, but the, the relationship of husband and wife will end and it won't matter if you've had four husbands or three or two or in this ridiculous case seven you know it won't matter the relationship of husband and wife is finished but furthermore Jesus said Neither can they die anymore, for they are equal unto the angels in that, that they will never die. They become, we become, eternal beings. That's what he's saying. And are the children of God. You know, that's the phrase that John liked to use, and it's always been a favorite one of mine. We ask Tom Theon, children of God, born ones of God. Being the born ones, the we us, of the resurrection. So you have these... Children of God, if you, I don't know if I've ever heard that expression in reference to the angel, but these, these people of God that, G, that God created, that's the angels, which their name just means messengers, the messengers. And then there's these children of God, the Weostan God, of the resurrection, and that's us, you know. Now, the point is, you know, uh, a couple of things. Death will no longer destroy the ranks of God's people. So, he doesn't need us to reproduce, you know. He, he, procreation is not necessary. And on top of that, sin will be done away, and kind of tongue-in-cheek, then men won't need a wife anymore to keep us out of trouble, really. Uh, we, we won't have that nature that constantly says, causes my wife to say, Bob, you really don't want to do that, you know. We will be children of the resurrection, and sin will be no longer. I heard a great voice out of heaven. John wrote in Revelation chapter 21. That's the next to the last book of the Bible, verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle, that means the tent, literally the dwelling place of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and he will be their God. 
And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Eternity future is going to be entirely different than anything we've ever experienced on this life so far. But we will be part of that if we receive Jesus as our Savior. You know, when the population of believers on this earth reaches that number or that quantity of people that God intends it to be, and it may be, it depends on how you look at it, it may, it, my, my old pastor used to say, when everybody who's going to get saved gets saved, when the number has been achieved, he will come for us and it'll all be over. Then we will be like the angels in the sense that we will be immortal. Uh, we will be the children of the resurrection. Now, there are many people that don't believe in the resurrection. My mother used to say, I hope she believes in it now. <laughs> but she used to say, we live our heaven and hell right here on earth. That's all there is. Always it's done after that. That's not true. Jesus made that clear, and the scripture makes it clear from cover to cover that there is life after this experience we call life. There are a lot of doubters, and you know, it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame. But the fact is, if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you don't believe Jesus is raised from the dead, there's no hope for us. So Jesus is going to speak to them on that. Now that the dead, we're back in Luke. I, I tried to color code this so you know every time I jump out of Luke. I didn't do it perfectly, but it's getting there. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. I want you to see this. Uh, these guys believe that the first five books of Moses are inspired. They don't accept the other books. All right, so it's kind of hard to go through the theology of the resurrection in the Old Testament of the first five books of Moses. You know, and I, I remember this in seminary. Uh, I lost my place. When he called the Lord God of uh, now, now that the dead are raised, Jesus is now on the subject of the resurrection of the dead. That's that's the way we would say it today. Even Moses demonstrated, showed it at the bush. You remember Moses saw a bush that burned and one burned up, and he went to see it, and he asked God who he was, and God said, "I am." You know, when he called the Lord God of Abraham, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Now, Luke, Luke doesn't make as much of this verse as Mark does. So I'm going to take you to Mark. But first, I'm going to take you back to Exodus, where God was actually speaking to Moses. And Moses wrote down what he said. Moreover, he said, I am. Now, I am the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And now, Mark picks up on that and requotes Moses in Mark chapter 12 on the same subject. We're at the same point in the scripture, if you're following a, a timeline. As touching the dead, Mark writes, 
that they rise not. This is Mark quoting Jesus. Uh, and, you know, Mark was a kid. I've often said he probably wasn't there. He probably wasn't there. You've heard me say that a number of times. Actually, this was close to his hometown, so he probably was here at this time. Matthew says the same thing. I just like the way Mark wrote it. That's why I'm using it. And it's touching the dead that they rise not, Mark writes, quoting Jesus. Have you not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? And I'm going to move forward, and then I may come back. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now, I don't know if you saw it there, but if I back up, I, I put that yellow highlight in there. That's, uh, that's kind of a way to emphasize what I wanted you to see. That is a present tense, continuous verb. And what I want you to see is that Jesus made the argument to the Pharisees who say they believe the five books of Moses. He made the argument for the proof of life after death, not the resurrection, but certainly life after death, based on the tense of a Hebrew verb. I think that's pretty significant. God could have said, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. But he didn't say that. He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. And if that didn't clear it up enough for him in John chapter 8, he said them, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad because Jesus had said something about Abraham. And they said, you've seen Abraham? Now, this is the Pharisees he's talking to now, the Sadducees. And Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my name. No, no, no. He didn't say, I've seen Abraham's day. He said, Abraham seen my day. He puts the lesser before the greater. He got to see me. It ain't a question whether I got to see him. It's a question that he got to see me. And I hope you see how he's taking these words. He's turning the tides on him. But if there be no resurrection, Paul writes of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they who also were fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. I don't know how a person can call himself a follower of Christ and say, but I don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. I don't see how that could be that I could say to someone, do you believe in life after death? And they'll say, no, but I'm a Christian. And I think I don't I don't understand how that is, because it is the power of the resurrection that changed our lives when we first met the Lord Jesus Christ. So there I was laying on that bed and asked Jesus to come into my life and save me. And I didn't know anything had transpired until the next morning. I woke up a different person. Now, I was made a different person, well, depends on your theology, before the foundation of the world, but I didn't experience any change until I prayed to receive Christ. But the next day, I was a new creation. I love it in The Chosen, where Mary goes, I just know that one day I was this way, and another way I was another, and I can't explain it. And that's the way I was. One day I was dead in sin, and the next day I was dead to sin taken a long time to, to reckon that out. But the fact remains, if in this life, the only hope we have is Christ, 
With no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. But the fact is, we do have a resurrection we can count on. I know that in the future, we face eternity with God, and that's a good thing. I would have you not to be ignorant, brethren. And the word, it's a strong word. It's really ill-informed. It softens the word ignorant. Brothers, Paul writes, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even in others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, as you can see I'm in First Thessalonians, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, when that number reaches its full amount, will not prevent them which are asleep. Now, asleep is a New Testament word that Jesus started using to describe believers who have died. These people are dead. We're not going to prevent the dead. My mother died in 1998. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to prevent her from being resurrected. Now, I believe in her spirit. She's alive in God right now. And I believe when Jesus comes back, before he raptures me out, the first thing he's going to do is have a general resurrection of all believers, and they'll be reunited with their resurrected bodies. So I won't see my mother as a spirit. I'll see her as her resurrected self. How old will she be? What will she look like? How will she act? I don't know. I don't know. But Paul says it's glorious. I'm lost. Well, we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Mom will be reunited with her heavenly body, her eternal body. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. There's the promise. It's the promise of the resurrection that gives us hope. Someone said, uh, why do they call them Sadducees? Well, they're sad because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's the point, you know. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask any question at all. <laughs> so in the first question, he silenced the Pharisees. And in the second question, he silenced the Sadducees. He actually then wants to ask them a question, as, as a good Jewish teacher would do. And he said to them, uh, let me ask you one question, since we're in this question and answer period. How say they that Christ is David's son? Now, they all are looking for the Messiah as the son of David, but they rejected the idea that the Messiah would be God in the flesh. I don't know how they, they came to that conclusion, but even today... Jews in general, I've heard Ben Shapiro say himself, I just cannot believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh. I just do. He knows the theology. He just doesn't believe it. And, and uh, Prager University, who's that? Dennis, what's his name? Dennis Prager. Thank you. Dennis Prager. I've heard him say the exact same thing. I would be a Christian, except I cannot believe that God would take on human form. I, I don't know how they missed it. But this is the thing that Jesus is addressing with them. How they say they that Christ is David's son. When David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David called him Lord. How is he then his son? It's a good question. Mark tries to bring the question a little closer. 
There, David therefore himself called him Lord, which means God. And whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not. Now, I wouldn't have used that verse if I were Jesus. I would have used this verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Clearly a reference to the Messiah. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I wonder if they deliberately did not read that passage to their congregation because they did not believe that God would ever take on human form. But it's kind of sad because all the way back in Genesis 3, it implied that the son of Satan and the son of God would actually do business with one another and that Jesus would win. The point is, Jesus is God come in the flesh. And God come in the flesh has taken on our sins, killed by his own people, taking the punishment that we deserve, taking that punishment to the cross and dying in our place so that God can freely forgive you and I. I didn't read any answer. It doesn't seem that the Sadducees or the Pharisees had a response to that, other than the fact that they set out from this point on to kill Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together, for this opportunity to go over your scriptures. Please, Father. The first thing is about, the first section of this is about being a better citizen. Father, please make us better citizens. Help us to stand up for what is right. Help us to stand against what is wrong. And yet help us to be law-abiding citizens of the United States. The second aspect of this message is about marriage. Help us, Father, to realize the brevity of the time that we have with our partners and be the best husbands and wives that we can be. Help us to realize that it will soon be over. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, loyal husbands and wives. And the last section of this is about the deity of Christ. Help us never to lose sight of the fact of who this man is, not was, but is, your son, your beloved son, who came to this earth and died in our place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.